Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. Enjoy a drink with us while we tell you some wild stories of the brutal and bizarre variety. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we like to end our time with a chaser. Okay, so today we have a little bit of a different style of episode. Instead of doing uh, two unrelated stories, one bizarre and one brutal, we're going to be covering the the majority of the, the JFK assassination. So, Mom, we'll be covering the... Uh, brutal side. The, yeah, the brutal side, we'll say, and I'll be covering more of the bizarre information on the on the story so yes what drink do you have associated with this so the drink that i have today is something that was rumored to be one of jfk's favorite drink and that was the daiquiri cocktail which not being a big drinker of like fancy drinks didn't know that there was a daiquiri cocktail that wasn't the slushy kind of cocktail where it was just (laughs) blended fruit juice and rum basically so this is the traditional i think the original daiquiri cocktail which consists of one and two-thirds ounce rum half ounce fresh lime juice a third ounce rich simple syrup so that's a two to one sugar water ratio Four drops of daiquiri bitters. That's optional. And the garnish is a lime zest twist and a lime wedge. You take all the ingredients into a shaker with ice and shake, and then strain it into a chilled glass. And that is your daiquiri. So are you ready to try it? Yes. It's a lot smaller than I was expecting. I put mine in a martini glass and only went like halfway. I was going to do that, but then I decided to put it in a lowball glass with ice because I didn't want it mm. to get warm. So okay. not a fan of warm drinks, but here we go. Let's give it a shot. Very limey. I like yeah, it. I don't yeah. usually like rum, but that's, that's good. I don't taste... You know, normally rum has that real strong flavor that can be kind of eh, not a fan of, but the lime and the simple syrup make it tolerable. Yeah. Lime and simple syrup will fix anything, though. That... Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it's... put it on an open wound and it'll probably make your yeah. bones heal. It's no, the, don't it's do that. Duck, don't listen to me. Duct tape of the cocktail world. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. It is. Well, let's get started because this might be a long episode with all of the information that we have. So, yes, yes. The American president is a very influential person. I think most people realize that. And that is a responsible, um, he's responsible, he could be a she so far, 
just been he. The, per, the, the president is responsible for not only domestic laws and policies, but also deals with foreign policies and interactions. Some people believe, some people view the president with high regard, while others might get very angry about how the president is handling a situation. One president in particular was fairly respected by not only U.S. citizens, but also politicians in other countries. Of course, it's impossible to make everyone happy although that would be nice, but you can't make everyone happy all of the time. And there were some enemies of this president as well. As you know, we were talking about JFK, but were those enemies able to plan and carry out an elaborate scheme to assassinate the president? Or was there just one angry man who didn't like the president and his policies? There are more questions and more conspiracies regarding JFK and his death than could ever be imagined. Let's take a look at JFK, both the brutal and the bizarre. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, often referred to as just his initials JFK, was born May 29, 1917. He also went by the nickname Jack. He was the second born of nine children. Oh, that's so many kids. His yeah, maternal shit. and paternal grandparents, I know, right? His grandparents were children. two cars to take all those kids. You, there's no cars with nine oh. seats. No, back then you just threw everybody in a wagon and went. In like the there weren't seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, there weren't seatbelts or anything. <laughs> Shit, nowadays you can't even put dogs in the back of trucks in some states. <laughs> I know. Well, I don't want my dog flying out of the back of my truck. I anyway. saw. When we were driving down to California, there was a dude driving a pickup with the gate open, and he had two dogs running around in the back. I missed that. He hit the gas too hard, and Fido's flying out. Oh, that's sad. So JFK's maternal and paternal grandparents were both were children of Irish immigrants. So all his family originated in Ireland. There were many politicians in his family tree. His younger years were spent growing up in Brookline, Massachusetts, under the family, until the family moved to New York when he was 10 years old. In his teen years, he attended prep school before starting college. JFK had numerous episodes of health issues, including appendicitis and gastrointestinal issues. His health problems occasionally caused some problems with attending college, but he eventually attended Harvard. During the summers of his college years, he spent substantial time traveling, including throughout Europe and the Middle East. This was during the late 1930s, and one visit was just prior to the UK declaring war on Germany. In 1939, while visiting Berlin, he received a secret message from the U.S. diplomatic representative to deliver to his father, who was an American ambassador at the time. It started... It stated that war would be imminent, and shortly thereafter, World War II began. Sure. Kennedy returned to the U.S. and returned to Harvard, graduating from there in 1940. He had attended, he had intended to attend law school at Yale afterwards, but since it appeared that the U.S. would soon be entering the war, he canceled those plans and entered the military instead. Due to chronic back problems, he was medically disqualified from the army. However, due to his political connections through his family, he was able to join the Naval Reserve in 1941. In October 1942, he earned the rank of lieutenant junior grade and was assigned to work on motor torpedo squadrons. 
In early August of 1943, he was commanding a boat based in the Solomon Islands. Their task was to block or repel Japanese destroyers or float planes. In the middle of the night, while trying to maneuver to attack a Japanese destroyer, JFK's boat was hit and cut in half, killing two crew members. Even though the incident injured his back, he and his 10 surviving crew members swam several miles to a nearby island. He spent several days swimming and sometimes towing injured crewmen between the islands while looking for food and shelter. He and the remaining crew were rescued by another American torpedo boat six days after their boat had been destroyed. It took him a month to recover from his injuries, and shortly after, he was promoted to full lieutenant. He was given command of another torpedo boat, which was modified to be a gunboat. About a month after starting that command, his boat participated in the rescue of about 50 Marines from an island south of Japan. Two weeks after this mission, Kennedy was removed from his command on doctor's orders, and he was sent to the hospital. His back was pretty jacked up. By the beginning of 1944, he was sent back to the U.S. to receive treatment for his back injury, and later that year, he was released from active duty. In March of 1945, he medically retired from the Naval Reserves and was honorably discharged with rank of lieutenant. He earned six medals during his time with the Naval Reserves, including the Navy and Marine Corps Medal, Purple Heart, American Defense Service Medal, the American Campaign Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with three stars, and World War II Victory Medal. In 1945, JFK worked with Hearst Newspapers as a special correspondent. This kept his name in the media and kept him up on like all the current political and media type driven information. The family's original plan was for JFK's oldest brother, Joe, to seek political fame and work towards becoming president. So the dad wanted Joe to be, you're going to go be president and we're going to do everything we can to make that happen. However, Joe was killed in 1944 as a Navy pilot. Therefore, the family political goals were placed on JFK. The second born child. Between 1947 and 1953, he was a member of the House of Representatives. From 1953 to 1960, he served as senator for the state of Massachusetts. In early 1960, JFK publicly announced his his intention to run for president of the United States. His campaign, like all of his other political campaigns, was funded by his father. He won the presidential race that year and started serving as the U.S. president in 1961. He was the youngest elected president at the age of 43. JFK was sworn in as the 35th president on January 20, 1961. In his inaugural address, he discussed the need for both local citizenship as well as global citizenship with an idea of fostering significant domestic policy as well as foreign affairs. Throughout his entire political career, like all politicians, he had some oppositions to his policies and opinions. Again, you can't make everybody happy all the time. In 1961, during the early stages of the Cold War, JFK was upset by a speech given by the Soviet Premier Khrushchev. Kennedy's discontent with Khrushchev led to tension at the Vienna summit, where both men attended in the summer of 1961, 
and the two men were not fans of each other. After the summit, JFK believed a nuclear war with the Soviets was likely to occur. Kennedy had allocated defense funds and sent troops to Germany to help maintain access to West Berlin. At the time, there was a dispute between the Soviets and the U.S. regarding East and West Berlin. Berlin was divided to East and West, and the Soviets were on one side and the U.S. was on the other, and they wanted to maintain that open ability to go there. And there was concern that they wouldn't be able to if the Soviets took over Berlin. The Soviet occupation of East Berlin led to the establishment of the Berlin Wall that separated East and West. Also occurring around this time were problems concerning Cuba. President Eisenhower, the president just prior to Kennedy, had started working on operations concerning Cuba. The intent of these operations were, were to overthrow Fidel Castro from his reign in Cuba. Kennedy approved the final invasion plan in the spring of 1961. The Bay of Pigs invasion began two weeks later. It was led by the CIA, including 1,500 Cuban exiles that had been trained by the U.S. to instigate a Cuban uprising for the purpose of removing Castro. So basically, they took these people that had left Cuba, they trained them and said, let's go, we're going to send you back, we're going to send you with some CIA folks and some other trained people, and you're going to start some shit and that's going to cause the people in Cuba to uprise against Castro to try and get him out. But the plan failed real quick. Like within a couple of days, many of the exiles had been killed or captured. And the resolution took almost two years to get the exiles released back to the U.S., the price tag for that was $53 million worth of food and medicine. I don't know how much that equates to today's money, but it's a lot. So a lot of people blame this failure on JFK not sending in air support because he didn't mm. initially agree with this plan, but he said, we'll go through with it, but I'm not going to provide air support. So a lot of people say... That's why that was my... this mission wasn't successful. Oh, okay. I did not see that in my research, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was <laughs> some concern. I mean, the whole Cuba thing just kept snowballing. I mean, it seemed like it was yeah. one thing after another. Several months after the failed Bay of Pigs operation, there was... There were several ideas thrown around involving false flag attacks. So basically what they were doing, the advisors were suggesting to make attacks on American targets and then blame those attacks on Cuba, saying, oh, Cuba did it for the entire purpose of having an excuse to declare war on Cuba. And JFK said, no, we're not doing that. That's not a good idea. He rejected it in 1962, but the military was still planning towards an invasion of Cuba. That fall, U.S. spy planes photographed the Soviets constructing missile sites on Cuba, which were deemed to be an immediate threat. After publicly announcing an intent to invade Cuba regarding the missile sites, 
Kennedy and Khrushchev came to an agreement to dismantle the missile sites as long as the U.S. would not invade Cuba. In 1962, JFK had a secret taping system installed in the White House, and it recorded several conversations between him and his cabinet members regarding Cuba and the missile crisis. During his time as president, JFK was involved in foreign policy with numerous countries, including Vietnam, Germany, France, Israel, Iraq, Soviet Union, and Cuba. A lot of his foreign policy centered around nuclear weapons and the potential for nuclear war. Kennedy was concerned about the use of these weapons, the placement of them, and the overall access that other countries might have. However, he was not also, excuse me, he was also concerned with the spread of communism in other countries. U.S. troops had originally been sent to Vietnam to give support to South Vietnam in an effort to curb communism. JFK furthered that effort by increasing the number of troops in 1963. It was later theorized that this increased presence eventually led to the Vietnam War, and that if Kennedy had been, in, had been president during the escalation, that perhaps the war wouldn't have happened altogether. So he had sent people in 63, but it was just a few extra troops in comparison, and then they stayed there after he died, and then more were sent, and it really upset people. And so some people think that if he had been alive, he would have said, eh, let's treat this whole Vietnam thing a little differently. Doesn't really matter now because it happened. On the home front, he had domestic policies that he worked on. Those included medical care for the elderly, federal funding for education, financial assistance to rural communities, government intervention aimed at stopping the recession, putting an end to racial discrimination, and making laws geared towards pay equality across the genders. At the time, some people thought he wasn't moving quickly enough in regards to civil rights and racial discrimination. At the beginning of his presidency, Kennedy was planning to end the manned space program. But after the Soviets won the space race by sending the first person to space, he changed his mind, asking NASA to step up their game. He didn't want to lose to the Russians or the Soviets. He was upset. You know, he didn't really he didn't like Khrushchev at all. And he was worried. But he was like, initially, he wasn't in favor of the whole NASA thing. And then when the Soviets got there first, he was like, OK, let's let's work on this. He was concerned about national security, but also wanted the prestige that would come with manned space travel, including a moon landing. The U.S. was the first to land a man on the moon, although it was several years after Kennedy's death in 1969. In November 1963, he traveled to Texas. The trip was aimed at mitigating some problems in the Democratic Party between several members. On November 22nd, he was traveling in a motorcade at midday, in downtown Dallas when he was shot twice. Although he was rushed to the hospital, he was pronounced dead 30 minutes later. The bullets originated from nearby. They were believed to have come from the Texas Book Depository. Lee Harvey Oswald worked at the depository and was arrested for the murder. Oswald maintained his innocence and claimed he was just a patsy, but two days later he was shot and killed by Jack Ruby. Ruby was arrested and convicted for Oswald's murder. He was sentenced to death. Ruby successfully appealed the conviction and sentenced 
the, he appealed the conviction and the sentence, but he died of cancer in 1967 before the second trial could be scheduled. There have been numerous theories regarding the assassination, and there have been several investigations looking for answers. Theories range from other governmental agencies like the CIA to the mafia to the KGB and back to Cuba, having been responsible for the death. The, the official investigations conclude there was no conspiracy and that Oswald acted alone. Yet, the documents regarding the death have been hidden for decades, with numerous presidents promising to release the information, yet still holding some of it back. And I see Lulu in the background. Yeah. Miss Lulu! A significant portion of the population do believe there was a conspiracy, and the crucial details have been hidden. So they have, over time, polled people and said, do you think there was a conspiracy? Do you think it was Oswald? And like a high percentage, like 30, 40% of the population are like, yeah, something shady went down. So will we percentage. ever know? <laughs> and that's where we'll ever know. <laughs> that's where we're leaving it off for Declan to tell us the bizarre stuff regarding this assassination. So there's a lot of information I'm going to cover, so I apologize if I'm a bit all over the place. I'm reporting the portion of information that I found most important and interesting to this situation, and I'm not insinuating anyone or any organization took part in John F. Kennedy's murder. Also, if I commit suicide, no, I didn't, and it requires more <laughs> investigation. <laughs> I agree with that. No, you are not. <laughs> Thank you for that so, disclaimer. The JFK assassination was recorded on the infamous Zapruder film. So if you'd like to see like a um, visual visualization of some of the things I'm going to be talking about, that's you can find it on YouTube and stuff, I think. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit more about Lee Harvey Oswald. So Lee Harvey, Lee Harvey Oswald had a troubled childhood being tempor temporarily placed in foster care by his mother shortly after his father's death. He joined the Marines when he was 17, and while serving, he became fascinated with Marxism and began to study it on his free time, as well as practicing his Russian. In 1958, Oswald suddenly left the Marines to care for his sick mother, However, two days later, he left the U.S. to go to Russia, where he tried to denounce his American citizenship. Where he tried to denounce his American citizenship, however, he never completed the paperwork, so he was still an American citizen. Yeah. Okay. He tried selling information about naval plans to the Russians. However, he was turned down and told to leave the USSR. 1962, so nobody wanted Oswald. Him. Yeah, no one wanted. Him. In 1962, Oswald and his new Russian wife allowed to come back to America and given a repatriation loan used to help defunct Americans get back to the states. 
when they realize that they really do want to live in the U.S. I didn't know that was a thing. Me either. But how I wonder if that still exists. I don't know. It probably does. But uh, Oswald was granted this loan because the U.S. government sought him to be a liability over there. (laughs) So they're like. They were like, you're going to stir up some shit outside, so come back and we'll pay for you to come back? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, kind of weird. That is weird. Yeah. 1963, Oswald bounced around jobs before finally landing at the Texas School Book Depository. Okay. Yeah, and he got that job about a month before the assassination. Okay. So. While bouncing around jobs, Oswald became involved with pro-communist groups. So they were mostly pro-Cuban, pro-communism groups. And uh, now that you know some background information about our potential shooter, let's talk about the situation itself. Around 1230, JFK rolled through uh, Dealey Plaza with his driver, wife, Texas Governor John Connolly and Nellie Connolly as well as uh, a couple of um, Secret Service. The Warren report filed by Lyndon B. Johnson, who was the vice president to JFK, claims that Oswald and Oswald alone made his way up to the sixth floor of the book depository. He fired three shots from his 6.5 millimeter rifle. The order of the shots is highly debated, though. This is the narrative that I saw is the first shot missed, the second shot hit JFK in the back, exiting his neck, and hit Connolly in the ribs. And the sh- third shot hit him in the head. And it, the I have a little image of like a top-down view of the whole area, and I'll try and put it up on screen. But the school depository was like at the back of the car, so they were driving away from it after they turned onto Elm Street. Okay. So it they're saying that it came from the farthest window away and hit JFK. Okay. Which would explain the so, hitting him in the back and the back. exiting the yeah. front of his neck. Okay. So officers made their way up to the sixth floor where they found three shell casings and a rifle with Oswald's fingerprints. 45 minutes later, a police officer was shot and killed and the shell casings were matched to a pistol Oswald owned. And ten, oh. uh, ten hours. Oops, sorry, an hour and ten minutes after the shooting, Oswald was arrested in a movie theater. While he was being escorted to the police car, he famously claimed that he didn't shoot anyone and that he was just a patsy. This only fueled the conspiracy fire. The Warren Commission, which was set up by Vice President, the, the Warren Commission, which was set up by Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson and was headed by Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Earl Warren, and consisted of about 400 staff and a budget of about $10 million. Uh, the commission held public hearings and officially interviewed over 500 people about 10 months after the assassination. The commission published a report of nearly 900 pages plus 26 volumes of interviews, depositions, wow. and exhibits, all of which would came to be the Warren Report. So that was the official, like the official narrative of JFK came from the Warren report. 
And that was soon after his assassination. Yeah. Okay. It, it was about 10 months. So there was a little bit of time for them to do investigating, but it was but fairly this was quick the after. first one, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this detailed the official narrative of the murder. However, after MLK's assassination, the House Select Committee on Assassinations was formed. Their job was to investigate prominent assassinations similar to MLK and JFK. The HSCA report claimed that a recording device on the police motorcycle was inadvertently recording audio during the JFK assassination and picked up four separate gunshots. However, this was debated in 2021. Another important discovery by the HSCA was the connection of Jack Ruby to the FBI. They discovered that Jack Ruby may have been working with the FBI as a paid informant during the 50s. But before I get too deep on Jack Ruby, let me reel it back in because that's another rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. So in a report filed by Jay Thompson interviewing 190 witnesses, only 64 of them were confident in the location of the gunshots being from the Texas School Book Depository. 52% of witnesses claiming uh, claim hearing the, the shots coming from the grassy knoll, which is a lot closer to the the car that JFK was riding in. It's the, the shot from the Texas School Book Depository would have been 240 feet, and the grassy knoll would have been uh, right on the other side of the like road. So. Oh. 30% of the witnesses report hearing more than three gunshots. So not a huge amount, but enough to be like, uh, that's, yeah. that's weird. One of the most interesting eyewitnesses testimonies comes from Lee Bowers and was actually included in the Warren report. A railroad, a railroad worker on duty in a building overlooking the grassy knoll. He claimed he saw two men standing on the knoll watching the motorcade claims that a flash of light and two puffs of smoke appeared on the grassy knoll as JFK was assassinated. He also claims seeing several vehicles leaving through a small road between the grassy knoll and the book depository. Two witnesses from the book depository claim only hearing one or two shots fired from the building, not three. There was uh, a couple ladies on the third floor, I believe, of the the book depository when JFK was assassinated and they report only hearing uh, one or two. They can't, they're not really sure, but they, they said they did not okay. hear three shots. In January, 1975, president Ford appointed a commission to investigate the domestic activity of the CIA, which was included the assassination of JFK. The commission, which was also known as the Rockefeller, Commission, which was also known as the Rockefeller Commission, which if you're a conspiracy theorist, ring, rings a couple bells. That, that's a very prominent name. Big name. Big name. Yeah. So they confirmed reports of illegal surveillance conducted on U.S. citizens. However, they found no proof of involvement in JFK's assassination. Although the executive director of the Rockefeller Commission had been assistant counsel on the Warren Commission. So you could see how... That might get a little complicated. Yeah. A little conflict of interest, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely, I'd say. So in spring of 1976, 
the committee chairman and executive council were replaced at HSCA, and this is when major progress started happening. In 1979, the HSCA submitted its final report in which it had one major revision of the Warren Report, claiming that there was, in fact, a shooter on the grassy knoll. And this was all determined through the recording device that was uh, accidentally left on on the police motorcycle. Okay. So, but one of the most interesting parts of this story comes straight from the Warren Commission. And that's the magic bullet theory. So the magic bullet theory, also known as the single bullet theory, involves the bullet that hit JFK and Connolly. This theory explains that the bullet which hit Kennedy in the back exited out of his neck, passed through the seat of the car, into Connolly's back, exited Connolly's chest, entered Connolly's right wrist, and finally embedded itself in Connolly's thigh. Was he doing so, yoga? <laughs> he definitely okay. was not. He was sitting in the motorcade car. And okay, I mean, I guess just... if his thigh was, if his hand was on his thigh... But that, okay. It's going to yeah. have to be. So, this means that the bullet passed through a back brace, a car seat, 15 layers of clothing, around 15 inches of muscle tissue, Connolly's ribs, his wrist, and even shattered his radius bone. Okay. So one bullet did a shitload of damage, which uh, it's been debated, but. Yeah. It should also be noted that more bullet fragments were discovered in Connolly's body that should have been present on the bullet taken out of his thigh. Which, uh, take that as you will. I have. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> I don't know. So, well, experts have debated in either direction endlessly about this topic. Another witness has a strange story. James Tagg was meeting his girlfriend for lunch when he was caught in traffic due to the parade. He parked his car and began walking. When he got under the bridge, ahead of the presidential when he got under the bridge, he he was ahead of the presidential motorcade, so they were coming at him on the street. Okay. So he stopped to watch the the motorcade, and when he stopped, he heard the shots ring out. James was hit in the face by a piece of rock and began bleeding. He was approached by a Dallas police officer when a fresh scar in the concrete was discovered. So what detectives were able to put together was that the stray shot had hit the concrete 20 feet from where James was standing and that debris from the ricochet hit James causing lacerations in the face. Which I guess would account for the missing shot. Yeah, I was going to say the but, first one that, that missed, right? That's what they're saying? But the, so in the picture, I'll again, I'll try and throw it up right now. But the bridge that he was standing in under was very far away from where the first shot took place. So it, it wouldn't have made sense for the bullet to travel that way. That Oh. Yeah, yeah so... It, it's kind of hard for you to imagine, I'm guessing, but yeah, for everyone I've watching, never seen diagrams and stuff. It, and if you're just listening, you can go find us on YouTube and 
you should be able to see the diagrams that Declan's talking about. Yeah. So detectives believed that the shots had either come from the book depository or the Daltex building, which was uh, is on the corner. Both the Texas book depository were not suppository, depository. Sorry. Ooh, okay. Definitely depository. <laughs> I don't want any books suppository. <laughs> no book suppositories. <laughs> Ooh, ow. So the Texas book depository and the Dow text building are both on corners opposite streets from each other. So okay. if that helps at all. but Are they on the same another... side, like east-west side versus like one's on the east side, one's on the west side or something? You know what I mean? Like Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they were exactly. both on the same side like of the street. Okay. So another strange part of this whole thing was the way Kennedy's body was handled. Texas law dictates that the autopsy be done at the closest hospital to the incident. JFK was quickly examined at the hospital in Dallas where it was determined that the wound in JFK's neck was an entrance, entrance wound rather than an exit wound. However, the autopsy was cut short to rush Kennedy's body to Washington, D.C. Oh... Well, the autopsy that's a big was finished. Difference. Yeah, that's a far distance to travel too. The autopsy was finished by two uh, physicians, Commander James Humes and Commander J. Thornton Boswell. They were assisted by ballistics wound expert Pierre Fink of the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. However, the autopsy notes were burned two days later by James Humes. Oh. He claimed that the, they had JFK's blood on it, and so he tossed him in his fireplace at home. Yeah. But this wasn't the only thing that was missing from the autopsy. Kennedy's brain was supposed to be kept for later examination. However, that was misplaced. Still has never been found to this day, so. Okay. Most of the information I've told you was all involved around the assassination. But let's take a look a little bit further. The number one question is why would someone assassinate JFK? Well, as you mentioned previously, the Bay of Pigs and the false flags attacks involving Cuba are believed to be a major factor. So the false flag attack was a joint protected, uh, a joint project between the Department of Defense and the CIA called Operation Northwood. Project involved remotely controlled commercial jets disguised as both military jets and commercial airliners. The plan was to shoot down these unmanned aircrafts and tell the American population that the Cuban government shot down said aircrafts. This would in turn convince Americans that we need to go to war with Cuba. When the CIA brought this information to JFK, he rejected it and in turn fired the first and longest civilian director of the CIA, Alan Dules. Alan wasn't a great guy and oversaw a lot of messed up CIA operations, including the 1953 Iran Iranian coup d'etat, the 1954 Guatemalan coup d'etat, and Project MKUltra, which will come into play in a minute. Obviously, JFK and Alan butted heads and after his termination from the CIA, Duels would obviously hold a grudge against him. 
After his termination, Allen remained in contact with many of his former peers and would sit and some say he still had control at the company. And the worst part of it all, he was one of the head members of the Warren Commission. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. A lot of people investigating the assassination of JFK that didn't get along with him. <laughs> seems yeah. like. Yeah. Well, like I said, you can't make everybody happy all of the time. So he's yeah. going to make a few enemies. So okay. another extremely interesting part of the entire situation is Jack Ruby, which is my favorite part. But bear with me because this is going to get a little weird. Okay. As if it weren't weird already. Yeah. So Jack Ruby was a low to medium tier criminal involved in an organized crime group called the Yiddish Connection. 1956 FBI reports stated that informant Eileen Curry had moved to Dallas in January with her boyfriend James Breen after jumping bail on narcotics charges. Breen told her that he had made connections with a large narcotics setup operating between Texas, Mexico, and the East, and that James got the okay to operate through Jack Ruby of Dallas. So Jack Ruby was a fairly high up guy that was able to let this this couple work with them. So on March 11th, 1959, FBI agent Charles W. Flynn of the Dallas office approached Ruby to become a federal informant due to his job as a nightclub operator. Since he might have known of the criminal element in Dallas, Ruby was willing to become an informant and was contacted by the FBI eight times between March 11th, 1959 and October 2nd, 1959. But he provided no information to the Bureau. He was not paid and contact ceased. However, the FBI might not be the only three-letter agency assigned to Ruby. Mm. Evidence produced by journalist Tom O'Neill proves Jack Ruby was involved in Project MKUltra conducted by the CIA. Jolly West, also known as Louis Jolin West, was an American psychiatrist and major proponent of the MKUltra experiments, with most of his prominent and active patients being Charles Manson. That was his Charlie. his big, uh, that was his number one assignment was Charles Manson. Really? Wow. Yeah. Jolly West's name comes up with almost any victim of the MKUltra experiments, which, if you're not familiar, regards experimental CIA LSD usage in the hopes of it successfully controlling or altering one's mind. Well, Maybe I we'll think LSD similar... controls somebody's mind. <laughs> it definitely alters. Yeah, alters. Uh, yeah. So maybe we'll do a similar style episode about the Charles Manson murders. Drop a comment if oh. you'd like to see that. Yeah, let, us, let know. us know. After Jack Ruby was arrested for shooting and killing Lee Harvey Oswald, Jolly West mysteriously assigned himself as Ruby's psychiatrist in the spring of 1964, conveniently before Ruby was tried in court for the murder. So he assigned West himself. Mm -hmm. Ruby didn't ask for him. No, he went to Ruby's okay. lawyer and assigned himself as... And said, I'll be the psychiatrist. Okay. Yeah. So West arrives at the prison in Dallas for his first meeting with Ruby in April of 1974. 
In the 50s, West had gone to officials claiming he was successful in inducing insanity in unaware targets during MKUltra experiments, which could provide useful given the situation. Oh. As reported by West for the 48 hours after Jolly West stepped into the room with Jack Ruby. Ruby fell into an incon- irrevocable psychotic break. There had been no prior evidence of Ruby being mentally ill before his meeting with Jolly West. West, was tr- uh, West treated Ruby for six months before he finally gave his testimony to the Warren Commission, in which he proceeded to babble incoherently about his brother being tortured by Nazis and Jewish prisoners being killed by Nazis outdoor or outside the courthouse. Who gave that testimony? Ruby. Ruby. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And again, I'm not only reporting on the information I found, which I deemed important and bizarre in this case, but if you think I missed a certain story or narrative, let me know. Because that I, I there's so much information. There's so many conspiracy theories that are just yeah. rabbit holes, and they end up in a dead end somewhere, and it just right. Yeah. Well, so like I, I said, I mean, when I was researching it, I found. You know, talk about the CIA, the mafia, the KGB, the Cubans, all of those being, you know, potentially responsible for the assassination. I didn't look into the details of those because I wasn't covering the bazaar. But so it should also be said that both uh, Ruby and Oswald were part of pro. Cuban uh, groups too. Okay. Yeah. So they're both, uh, they're all working with some kind of shady mob criminal organizations. But. Yeah. I don't know. It just. Well, one of the things that I found when I was looking everything up was when he was, I can't remember if it was when he was a senator or before. But he had some dealings with, uh, like labor unions. Yeah, and yeah, there was didn't always get along with the labor unions. So I was wondering if that might factor into one of the conspiracy options of because he he following the mob, I believe, because that potentially was mostly run by the mob, right? The labor unions. Uh, I mean, I think it kind of depended, but yeah. Yeah, I think that the mafia was probably the labor union connection, but who knows? That's what I was thinking when who I was knows? reading it. Someone knows. Somebody JFK knows. But that person's probably not alive any longer because that was well, or they a long pro- ass they time ago. Because they still haven't released all the documents. Biden still hasn't released them all. Right. He released some recently, but not all of them. He was supposed to release not all. all of them. Right. Probably got lost know. in his Corvette. Could be sitting in his house somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have a chaser to 
lighten this I, weird episode up. My chaser is a show recommendation, and we just found it on Netflix. It's called Red Rose. It's a series. We just watched season one. I think it came out in 2022, but we had never seen it before. And it's basically a group of friends in England. They're like 16, 17-year-old teenagers get infiltrated by an app and someone controlling an app on their phones. And Mm. they start getting stalked and harassed and terrorized by someone controlling an app. And it's really intriguing and it's super interesting and it makes you like scream at your TV numerous times, just throw your phone away, just do something. (laughs) But it's, it's a really interesting little show. And I, hopefully there's going to be a season two. They totally set it up that there's going to be a season two. So cross my fingers, hopefully soon. Nice. Sounds. Yeah. How about you? Do you have a chaser? Yes. So I saw this post on Instagram the other day and it was saying that new york city has banned dogs that can't fit in bags so <laughs> new york citizens have been or, or they banned them on the subway sorry so they're they, getting creative yeah what they're doing is a bunch of people bought like giant tote bags you'd bring to the beach and then they cut holes for the legs out and then put their dogs and then walked him like a leash, like holding on. And the dogs just walking while technically being in a bag. <laughs> There's just a bunch of different photos of people doing that. There's like a giant dog in someone's backpack and they're walking like the hunchback. <laughs> in Notre Dame. That's awesome. Uh, I just thought it was funny. You should uh, go look up the New York City backpack dogs and you'll yeah. find some funny pictures. That's awesome. I love that. Well, that brings us to the end of our JFK podcast. Yes, it does. I don't know if we missed anything or forgot Let something. Let us know how you liked the combo yeah. and combination of the two in one story. Yeah. All right. Yeah, definitely. Well, I love you. I love you too. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening and supporting our podcast. We would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to give us a five-star rating, we would forever be grateful. You can contact us at our email via thebrutalandbizarre at gmail.com or on our Instagram at thebrutal underscore bizarre underscore boozy.